Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. The world is teetering on a very dangerous situation. And the question is, what would a traditional American foreign policy look like? Well, I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan show. Glad to be back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Remember to get that 25% off all the time by using the coupon code podcast on every class 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you can save 25% just by doing that. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can go to Spotify for podcasters. You can click on the little heart button under the video if you're watching on YouTube. All those are great ways to throw a few pennies my way, help keep the podcast free of charge. Click on the shop tab, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff, or purchase one of my books at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com. All those things help support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast so people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Those things help get more eyes and ears on the show. And send me the show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. Well, let's talk about American foreign policy. Or at least uh, there was a question for me on social media. Am I a libertarian? When am I? And this was posed because I had posted a meme where I talked about uh, the United States and Israel, and the Ukraine, and American foreign policy, essentially. And of course, we know the world right now is in a very dangerous situation as I'm recording this, and that would be that there, this situation in Israel could spiral out of control. The situation in the Ukraine could spiral out of control. Those two things compounded together could really make a nasty situation. And then you throw in and factor in American immigration policy, or a lack of a policy, for the last several years, and you have a pretty dangerous and volatile situation in the United States. Domestically, you also have a pretty dangerous and volatile situation in the rest of the world, particularly since the United States has military uh, presence in over 100 countries. We've sent a carrier group to the Middle East in a show of support for Israel. And so this could, this could get very, very dangerous. You have people in the Republican Party saying this is a great opportunity for the Republican Party to win elections which shows you what this is really all about. Uh, and you have Republican presidential candidates standing up and saying, we need to support Israel at all costs. But what does that actually mean? Just like the Democrats who stand up and say, we need to support Ukraine at all costs. So what does that actually mean? Well, it means American blood and American money. Taxpayer blood and taxpayer money, because none of these people are actually going to go over and do anything about it. They're going to send Americans over to the Middle East or over to the Ukraine, to Europe, whatever it is, 
potentially with Iran. Who knows where this could spiral out of control? It's very, very dangerous. You also have politicians, establishment politicians, saying we need to defend Taiwan at all costs, South Korea at all costs, NATO at all costs. And so this brings up a very important point about American foreign policy. What should it be? We know that in the post-World War II world, uh, the United States became the leading superpower. It was the empire. And we know the United States government spends more on its military than the next at least 10 countries combined. And that's because war becomes very profitable. Military surplus, military items become very popular. For a long time, you could go into a military surplus store and get you about anything you wanted out of there. I mean, the United States government produces too much stuff. And of course, we know that this stuff is now being used against supposed American allies, as it's been abandoned in places like Afghanistan and elsewhere. We know that the United States has funded many of the groups that are now opposing the United States or opposing U.S. allies. They're using our material against us, essentially. This is what happens when you produce so much stuff, and you got to sell it. And so military items becomes an exportable product. You sell it to whoever wants to buy it because it's very expensive, and of course, these manufacturers make a lot of money on it. As Smedley Butler said, you know, war is a racket. He went to war in the early 20th century, particularly in South America, for American business interests and banking interests. And essentially, that's what you're still seeing today. In some cases, American political interests. We know that, for example, in the 1950s, the Democrats made a calculation to support Israel because you had large blocks of Jewish voters in the United States, and they were going to vote Democrat because of it. So there was a political calculation there. So we know that you have financial calculations, political calculations, and these things often are manifested in American politics, one way or the other. How are we going to vote? What are we going to do? These kind of things. So this becomes a really interesting dilemma and a really interesting uh, question for, you know, what should American foreign policy look like? Now, one thing that um, Ron Paul used to say when he would run for president was that foreign policy then impacts domestic policy and vice versa. Your foreign policy says a lot about your domestic policy. Domestic policy says a lot about your foreign policy. They work together. And when you have a domestic policy that's uh, in the United States that now encompasses every aspect of American life, when it covers everything the American population would do, and we've centralized so much power in Washington, D.C., that becomes a problem. It also becomes a problem for foreign policy because Washington, D.C. becomes isolated. It becomes insulated from the, from the outside world. I, mean, uh, I, I know that there are a lot of people in the U.S. on both sides who would say support the situation in Ukraine, typically if you're on the left, but also many conservatives, uh, neoconservatives would do that. And then, of course, on the other side, you have a lot of conservatives who would support Israel against Hamas or Iran or take your pick of whatever Middle Eastern power. We also know that a lot of these things were created by the United States itself. We know in Ukraine, the United States propped up the Zelensky administration. In fact, put it into power. We know that in the Middle East, uh, the United States destabilized Iran in the 1950s. We know that the United States was behind backing Osama bin Laden at one point. We know the United States was backing Hamas 
We know all this stuff was going on. We know the United States backed Saddam Hussein. So the United States has created a lot of this, the brush fires that we're now seeing that we have to get involved in and spend more money and more American blood on. I mean, these are things that have happened. And why? Well, because the United States has become invested in what we're called in the founding generation entangling alliances. In fact, if you had to press me on what I am politically, I would say I'm an old American Republican with a lowercase r, or an old American Federalist with a lowercase f. I believe in the original Federal Republic. And I believe in a paragraph that Thomas Jefferson wrote in his first inaugural address. I think in many ways he was spot on about what the American tradition actually was to the majority of Americans. And we know this was the majority of Americans, not just in 1801, but perhaps before this point and for the next, say, several decades, because of the way Americans voted. We know beginning with Jefferson through James Monroe, three presidents, 24 years, you had people that believed generally in this paragraph and what Jefferson said in his inaugural address. And even after that, even after John Quincy Adams wins in 1824, uh, well, John Quincy Adams always called himself a national Republican. We know that there was a drift from some of these principles in that. And Jefferson himself even drifted away in his second term, at least in some ways. But there was a correction, supposedly, with the Andrew Jackson administration. Jackson spoke a lot like a Jeffersonian. Didn't always govern like it, but spoke like it. And Martin Van Buren was very much a Jeffersonian. You look at uh, John Tyler, very much a Jeffersonian. And then, of course, in the 1850s, you get uh, two Jeffersonians, Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan. So the Jeffersonian position, even, even with people like Zachary Taylor, who was a Whig, his foreign policy sounded a lot like Jefferson. In fact, people would often cite Jefferson. I mean, Lincoln himself even spoke a lot more about Jefferson than he did Washington. Jefferson became really the focal point for American political history. I mean, you could say that the early 19th century was the age of Jefferson. And then that led to the age of Jackson. By the way, speaking of the age of Jackson, just use the coupon code Manifest Destiny on that class at checkout, the age of Jackson. You get 80 bucks off right now. So it's a great deal. You never see it for that price again. I've got all kinds of sales running at McClanahan Academy. We're getting up close to Christmas. It's a great time to purchase things at a discount. And go ahead and do it. I mean, take advantage of these coupons. Take advantage of these deals. Because particularly on launch, once I launch a class and I give you that coupon, you'll never get it for that price again. It's the lowest you're ever going to see it. And if you want to save money, and we know that things are more expensive, that's a great way to do it. And it keeps this podcast free of charge. And you get great educational content out of it. And I think you're going to perhaps rethink some things about your positions on American history and politics and government and economy and other things. Or maybe it will reinforce those things for you. But either way, you're going to have the ammunition you need to fight back against the woke, politically correct madness in America. So I want to, I want to go through this paragraph. And again, I've, I've covered this particular speech in detail in several classes at McClanahan Academy. I have a class on reading Thomas Jefferson. If you use that coupon code podcast, get 25% off that right now. 
Um, I've got a class on Southern cultural intellectual history. I've got a, a bundle with that or just the class itself. Again, 25% off. Use the coupon code podcast. You get all these things. So I'm going to take one part of this and talk about it on this particular episode. Because again, I think it speaks to what uh, America was in 1801. Even if you look at political opposition, even if you think about the Federalists with the capital F, and some of them, of course, would disagree with this, but I think the majority of Americans would have agreed with this particular paragraph, and it does speak to foreign policy. What would an American foreign policy look like should, say, the founding generation be involved? And I, and I, I posted this, again, something like this on, on Twitter, and people were immediately saying, yeah, but Washington abandoned the French. Well, why would Washington support the French? When you have a revolution, a bloody revolution, that is the precursor for all major nasty revolutions of the 19th and 20th centuries, why would you support that when in supporting the French would get the United States involved in a world war? I mean, I think that initially, uh, you know, many Americans thought that the initial stages of what became the French Revolution was fine. There was a an interest in uh, the uh, a constitutional monarchy, perhaps, in France. But France was different from the United States. France was different from Great Britain. France had a different political culture. And you can't compare the two. And so if Washington had supported, or John Adams had supported, or Thomas Jefferson had supported the French Republic, the United States would have been engaged in a war with Great Britain very quickly. And, it, I mean, look, Jefferson had to deal with this. Washington and Adams had to deal with this. Adams had to deal with a war with France as they were attacking American shipping, the quasi-war with France. People forget about this stuff. But they were, they were certainly aware at that time that Amer the American position, where it was situated with a big ocean between the United States and Europe, should not be involved in European wars. That was the Monroe Doctrine. European wars for European interest. And you have to ask yourself, what is, when you look at the Middle East, and you just look at the, the basis of the Monroe Doctrine, and you can apply that to anywhere. Is the United States getting involved in a Middle Eastern war for Middle Eastern business, for Middle Eastern interests? Or is it getting involved for American banking interests or American commercial interests? How about in Europe? Is it getting involved in a war for European interests or for American banking or commercial interests? And I would say commercial interests, I'm looking at uh, military supplies. Is it getting involved in these things for that? I mean, we're spending billions of dollars of American taxpayer money. And even if we're not being taxed for it, it's still taxpayer money because we're seeing inflation because of it. You print more of it. We don't actually have it. You just print it. And then, of course, that's going to cause everything to go up. I mean, this is the other side of this. So Americans are paying for these foreign interventions. Americans are paying for these wars. And it could get even higher. I mean, look, if there was a disruption in the Middle East, you could see gas prices go way up. You could see food prices continue to spiral out of control. Of course, you're also going to see American bloodshed in these areas if it continues down a very dangerous path. This is terrible stuff that we're facing. So when you look at foreign policy driving domestic policy, and of course domestic policy is a reflection of all these things, you have to go back to this speech that Jefferson gave and say, if we had to pick a path, a way forward for America, this would be it. Now, one thing that Jefferson is often criticized for is being very interested in open immigration. He, 
He just simply thought the states would regulate this stuff. He didn't think the United States central government had the authority or the power to do it. They could come up with naturalization laws, but as far as people moving into the states, that was up to the states themselves. Now, we know the Supreme Court has ruled in the 20th century that, no, 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 the, uh, the, the uh, immigration is completely under the purview of the federal government. Well, this is an incorrect decision based on the way the founding generation, who by, by happenstance wrote the Constitution, understood it. But Jefferson thought, you know, if you put, applied this today, the state of Texas could put up a wall. It could, it could seal its border off from another a foreign entity like Mexico. And we know, for example, Mexico, uh, that the people coming through Mexico are oftentimes you know, from other places. They don't want them in Mexico, so they're just shipping them into the United States. Other places in Central America or other places where they've come into to Central America from other parts of the world. And that lies the danger on some of these things. So we know that there's a whole lot of complex things happening out there. But I want to go through this paragraph because, again, it speaks to a Jeffersonian vision with a lowercase r, Republican vision, a Federalist with a lowercase f vision for America. And when, you know, um, when Jefferson would use the term federal, we're all Federalists, we're all Republicans. Of course, he's speaking of the faction, but at the same time, you know, the original anti-Federalists were actually the real Federalists. What they wanted was a federal republic. So he says, about to enter federal citizens on the exercise of duties which comprehend everything dear and valuable to you, it is proper you should understand what I deem the essential principles of our government, and consequently those which ought to shape its administration. I will compress them within the narrowest compass they will bear, stating the general principle, but not all its limitations. And so now he's going to tell you what the Jeffersonian or Republican, lowercase r, or traditional American position would be in regard to these things. Equal and exact justice to all men, of whatever state or persuasion, religious or political. So when Jefferson spoke of equality, this is what he was talking about. Equal and exact justice to all men, of whatever state or persuasion, religious or political. Now, he's speaking of citizens in this particular case. And because uh, he, he, he qualifies it with political or religious, though equal exact justice, state or persuasion, state meaning the state they live in, state or persuasion, whatever religion or political persuasion they are, equal exact justice, no alien and sedition laws. I mean, that's what he's getting at. So when you look at American legal policy, do we have this situation in the United States today? Well, we know we don't. It could be we, we have uneven justice in many situ situations, and I think that there are valid claims against both sides in this particular situation. We don't have equal and exact justice. We don't have equal and exact justice when it comes to government policy at all. But uh, this would be something to perhaps strive to do, but that would that would cut out some of the policies of the left. Uh, most importantly, 
He says, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. In fact, it was Jefferson who said entangling alliances, not George Washington, but Thomas Jefferson. Peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. Peace, commerce, and honest friendship. Entangling alliances. I mean, we're not going to have an alliance with this country or that country, which get us into war with that country. And we're going to trade with you because that's the most peaceful thing you can do. And you don't forge alliances with any of these people. You occupy a position of neutrality. Now, you could say it's armed neutrality. I mean, look, uh, you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. Don't invade us. Don't attack us. And Jefferson had to deal with this with the Barbary pirates. Don't invade us. Don't attack us. And we won't have to attack you back. Just leave us alone. We're not going to pay your fines. We're not going to do any of that. Just leave us alone, and we'll leave you alone. The support of the state governments and all their rights as the most competent administrations for our domestic concerns and the surest bulwarks against anti-Republican tendencies. And all their rights, he called them states' rights, for our domestic concerns. Real federalism, in other words. I mean, this is this would be a reflection of domestic policy into foreign policy. If you centralize too much, it's going to destroy this kind of domestic policy as well. The preservation of the general government and its whole constitutional vigor as the sheet anchor of our peace at home and safety abroad. And, and its whole constitutional vigor. Not unconstitutional. But whatever the general government can do, I mean, he calls it the general government, whatever the general government can do, Constitutionally, we should support that. Not unconstitutional government, that's dangerous, but constitutional government. And of course, peace at home and safety abroad. Again, peace, commerce, honest friendship. A jealous care of the right of election by the people. A mild and safe corrective of abuses which are lopped by the sword of revolution where peaceable remedies are provided. So he would say elections are better than the sword of revolution. There are peaceable remedies with elections. A jealous care of the right of election by the people. Now, you could say, well, we've got corrupt elections. This is true. And I look, elections still are the best way uh, forward in terms of a peaceful environment, as long as you don't have corrupt elections. And we know that that can be dangerous. Absolute acquiescence in the decisions of the majority, the vital principles of republics, from which is no appeal but to force the vital principle and immediate parent of despotism. And the decision of the majority. Now, what majority is the question? And Jefferson would be in many ways, uh, much more of a majoritarian, a simple majoritarian than, say, someone like John C. Calhoun. But what majority are we looking at here? Is it a simple 50% plus one? Is it a 60%, 67%, 75%? I talked about this last week. What kind of majority are we talking about in America? And those are, those are big questions. We can have those debates, what kind of majority we want. But certainly majoritarian government is considered to be the best way to move forward. I mean, 
in the American system. A well-disciplined militia are best reliance in peace and for the first moments of war till regulars may relieve them. So, not a big standing army, but a good militia. Now, we would call that potentially the National Guard today, even though the National Guard is perhaps unconstitutional. I've made that case before. But, regardless, we have a citizen army, a militia. And notice, you know, a a well-disciplined militia. Uh, This was the Second Amendment, right? You can't disarm the militia. The supremacy of the civil over the military authority. This is something that Americans have long believed in. You don't have the military governing the United States, even though we know that they have a lot of influence now. Economy and public expenses, that labor may be lightly burdened. So don't spend too much public money. And again, that could be in, in uh, foreign policy as well. The honest payment of our debts and sacred preservation of the public faith. Encouragement of agriculture and of commerce as handmade. The diffusion of information and arraignment of all abuses at the bar of the public reason. Freedom of religion, freedom of the press, and freedom of person under the protection of the habeas corpus. And trial by juries impartially selected. These things, are the things that Jefferson said, are the bulwarks of the American tradition. And he says it. These principles form the bright constellation which has gone before us and guided us, guided our steps through an age of revolution and reformation. The wisdom of our sages and blood of our heroes have been devoted to their attainment. What Jefferson is outlining here, he says, is the American tradition. This paragraph is the American tradition. Now, Again, you cannot like everything he says here, but I think he was spot on in what the American tradition was. And again, American reflection reflected in elections, Americans generally believe the same thing. There would be a few back and forths in the, in the antebellum period, but not much. He says they should be our creed of our political faith, the texts, of civic instruction, the touchstone by which to try the services of those we trust, and we should wander from them in moments of error or of alarm. Let us hasten to retrace our steps and regain the road which alone leads to peace, liberty, and safety. And should we wander away from them? Moments of error or of alarm, we need to go back to these. So here we are at a moment, right now, of alarm. Jefferson's saying we need to go back to these. We need to rethink about these first principles. Of America. This is, in many ways, what you would say is American conservatism. It's a particular kind of conservatism. At its core, Jefferson would believe in decentralization. He would believe in a limited central authority that had vigorous powers in certain areas. He would believe in a foreign policy where entangling alliances are not part of it, where we don't have these broad alliances with other powers that can get us involved in foreign wars for foreign benefit only. Peace, commerce, support of agriculture, which of course commerce is going to come off of that. These are things that Jefferson thought were important. Now, as he moves into the presidency, and Jefferson is President Jefferson, we know in his second term, with the embargo, which the pure Jeffersonians were completely against, 
But Jefferson did make a comment that domestic industry is also important. Independence in that way could be important. And this is where you get the Henry Clay Whigs. They build off of that Jeffersonian model, that second-term Jeffersonian model. They keep a lot of the other Jeffersonian stuff, but they start looking at a different type of political economy, or at least a type of political economy that would also embrace, in their mind, manufacturing as a, a way for independence. So in some ways, I mean, you could... I mean, Henry Clay would call this, you know, a fusion. There would be a fusion here of Jeffersonianism and maybe a little Hamiltonianism, and the progressives did the same thing in the 20th century. But Henry Clay would not be interested in any kind of central reform. He thought that would all be unconstitutional. He'd want to put a break on that. But all these things are really interesting. As we're dealing with a potential world on fire right now, Jefferson would say, we don't want to go to error. You know that there are some passions and some things going on here. And we, we know that we're seeing horrible things coming out of the Middle East or horrible things coming out of Europe. And the knee-jerk reaction is, we've got to do something about this. Jefferson would say, let's get back on the path of what made America great, which was essentially non-intervention. It was these principles that made America important and great. And that secured liberty, as he says... I mean, look what he says. Peace, liberty, and safety. These are the things that secured that. Peace, liberty, and safety. And that would be important. This whole speech is important. This first inaugural address really is one of the most important political speeches ever given in the United States. And I cover the whole thing again in, in a couple different courses at McClanahan Academy. Reading Thomas Jefferson. And, uh, I cover it in different ways, you know, the founding fathers and American presidents. I cover it in Southern cultural intellectual history. I cover it in several different places. But these are the things you have to understand about America. And if you do, we would probably have a different foreign and domestic policy. If enough people believed in these things, American foreign and domestic policy would look remarkably different than it does today. So, I wanted to answer those questions that were asked of me, and this is my answer about American foreign, about, you know, what I think of when it comes to American policy, whether it's central government, state governments, as Jefferson said, are the, are the bulwark for the domestic concerns of the United States. States reflect the political culture of their areas and should be free, generally free, from any kind of influence or abuse by the central authority. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten real federalism as we've had this headlong rush into centralization, which does produce also dangerous problems for foreign policy as well. All right. See you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.